want to welcome all those by way of television today to all of it, United Methodist Church. You know, frequently I get, it says A-L-L, all of O-F, yet, W-E-T. But we spell our name O-L-I-V-T. So all of it, United Methodist Churches, we come into your, your homes, prisons, nursing homes, those who are incapacitated and unable to come to worship. We consider it a real honor and a privilege to be able to minister to you. And we thank you, the local television program, and this is possible for without them and the staff here, we just consider it a privilege and an honor to be able to worship with you. And we're not large in numbers, but we're high in quality, and we appreciate all your thoughts and your prayers and any financial support. We're going through tremendous struggles, and so we just really appreciate those prayers and those financial gifts. Well, let us turn to our opening hymn in honor of the anniversary of Mike and Tina. Dying be the glory, and many of you have probably been sitting for a few minutes. You may want to stand. Purple number 308. 308, please. That's your purple hymnals, Thine Be the Glory. It's one of the great numbers, I believe, of Mike and, and Tina. How has the last seven years been, Tina? Has it been glorious? Glorious. And Mike? I'm still on honeymoon. You're still on great. Thank you. 
Thank you. You may be seated and let's turn to Majesty Purple Hymnals number 136 and honor the birthdays of Noah and Jeannie. And Jeannie, um, would you say that there's, uh, Paul is one of your, your favorites? And if, if I ask of him any special requests, you think he'd deny that? Uh, Paul, you feel comfortable coming forward this morning? Oh, look at this guy. Let's give him a round of applause.
Father God, this morning as we turn to you in prayer of petition and intercession, it's so easy to talk the talk but not walk the walk, to be a hypocritical Christian, to wear our Christianity only on the inside rather than the outside, bearing witness to the fact that we, we do truly stand for the flag and kneel for the cross. And Father, we thank you that you would make the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable unto you, Lord, as we walk the walk and as we talk the talk. We need more genuine, authentic, true Christians that act as Jesus did, who was willing to carry the cross for us. We thank you, Lord, as we turn the pages of our hymnals and look at our bulletins. These are just tokens, just kind of symbols of a relationship that we want with Jesus Christ. Religion is is so full of duties and obligations. Father, you want a relationship. The relationships that we have with our husbands and our wives and our children, you want those to be genuine and authentic. We want the intimacy of your Holy Spirit to be evident in our hearts and our lives. As we remember the May 22nd, May 22nd, as we call upon your presence of blessings upon the, the motorcycles, as that's our dedication and our blessing of our motorcycles and bikes and all forms of means of transportation. As we look forward to that day, we pray that you prepare and Grant us good weather, O Lord. We pray today for the last, the last Sunday of the year when they're having the omelet dinner for the American, the Legion Riders at Osseo. We thank you, Father, for those who are celebrating birthdays and anniversaries, the anniversary of Mike and Tina, and birthdays of Noah, Gina, Jeannie, and we. Thank you, for the, Father, for the tributes that we can honor those who righteously and holy live the word of God and authenticate and genuine the gospel of Jesus Christ. That not only talk the talk, but they walk the walk. They embody the incarnation, the Emmanuel, the God with us. We thank you for our guests today who travel from Wisconsin to be with us. We pray that you bless their travels. We thank you that they're a blessing to their own community and very involved in their own church and schools of education. We thank you, Father, for their centrality of the worship of scripture and tradition and reason and experience. And we pray as, as a Methodist church, we, we can become more genuine and authentic in our relationship with Christ, that we can live out these, these four premises and especially not only the book of discipline, which are Many churches are violating even today. And Gary will be sharing with us what's coming. And we, we thank you for yesterday and for all those who turned out. And we, we thank you for the blessings of Sue and took care of the glass. And, you know, people are thinking that, our, did we remove our windows because they're so clean? We, we thank you, Father, for our floors and the maintenance and, and the three congregations that have been just overwhelmed by how we maintain the, our church and how 
we care for us, and they really believe that's a reflection of, of our, the worshipers and the parishioners. And each of those congregations have given so much praise to Jesus because of the authenticity and the genuineness of the worshipers here found at all of it United Methodist Church. We pray, Father, your blessings upon our worship. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would bless the reading of your word as we prepare to turn to John, the 20th chapter, verses 19 through 23, 19 through 23, we pray for those who may be watching by way of television that they can authenticate their experience with Christ through the breaking of the bread of the word. That certainly Jesus was God in flesh and the Bible, the words, is God and Jesus replenishing our souls, lifting us out from the strifes and the turmoil and the, the fake news that we so frequently hear that God is still in control. We do pray for the Ukrainians and we pray for Taiwanese, we pray for other various lands that they're just, it seems like our world is, is collapsing in the last year and a half and we just pray for godly wisdom. We, we pray that we would know evil and call evil and that you don't have to be militarily minded and trained in military forces to realize what's going on in the world today. The lack of respect for law enforcement, military authority. We pray, Lord, that you would raise up Warriors such as Joshua and Solomon and David and all those patriarchs, matriarchs of the church too, Father, that, that seek first the kingdom of God and God's righteousness, that we may be truly those resurrection proponents of that he is alive, that he is truly alive and he lives within us. As you taught your followers to pray, saying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And if you turn with me now to our scripture lesson as Mike comes, John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. 19 through 23. Give you a minute or two to look at that. John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. Jesus appears to the disciples as Jesus wants to appear to you and I today. And also recorded in Luke chapter 24 and 1 Corinthians 15.9, his appearances. When it was evening, on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked. Why do you suppose they were locked? They were locked for fear, fear of the Jews. Jesus came and 
and stood among them and he said, Peace, peace be with you. And after Jesus said this, he showed them his hands. He showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples talk about a revelation of Jesus. I thank you publicly, Paul, for coming up and showing that great sign of your belief that you, you stand for the flag, you kneel for the cross. Jesus showed them his hands and his side, those emblems of suffering and death for you and I. And then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace. How we want peace in the world and peace in our own lives today. Peace, Jesus says, be with you. For as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Then he said this. And when he had said this, Jesus breathed. Jesus breathed on them and he said to them as Jesus breathes to you and I today, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Good morning. You know, we should notice that this is actually the first day the Lord, after the Lord has risen from his grave and the empty tomb was discovered. The disciples had gathered in a room with the door shut and locked out of concern for their own safety. Again, this was a private meeting, so the door was shut and locked. And that was out of fear of being discovered by the Jewish authorities. They would certainly punish them. Jesus appeared in the middle of the room this seems to solidify the fact that he was resurrected. So he kept the scars on his hands and feet so the others would come to greater faith. Despite the door being shut locked, Jesus appeared in the room and simply said, Peace be with you. And then he displayed the wounds, the wounds on his hands and feet. With the display of those wounds, the disciples positively recognized and realized it was Jesus they had just put in the tomb, standing before them. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. But this time he added, as the Father sent me, even so I send you. Jesus was sending his disciples on a mission to establish the roots of the Christian faith and also our Christian church. As he did this, he breathed into them the Holy Spirit. Something interesting I found out is God has power in his breath. When he created Adam, do you know how he made him come alive? He breathed on He breathed the breath of life on Adam. So there is no earthly barrier or, barrier or spiritual power or principality that will ever prevent us from reaching Jesus in our hearts. Even a locked door is certainly no obstacle. After, I told him, after he told them he was sending them, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. 
If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. This made me consider, like I said, the other time God breathed. And we should realize that every aspect of God exudes power, even his breath. He is that powerful and majestic that his breath breathes life. And another way to think of that concept is God is sharing himself with others. Your breath comes from within you. When God breathed life into Adam and when Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit onto the disciples, it was coming from inside of them. When he told them their sins were forgiven, it was because of the Spirit. They, they, they were the temples of that they were housing the Holy Spirit. And that was actually doing the forgiving, not, not the disciples. When he said, you forgive sins from others, they are forgiven. And when you retain sins from others, they are retained. That's because they have God in them via the Holy Spirit. But we must always, always, forever and ever take that responsibility with discernment. You can't just walk up and say to somebody, say to somebody, oh, your sins are forgiven. If you're not using discernment and the power of God within you, you're just breathing in. Now, we, or the disciples, didn't have the power, like I said, to, to uh, forgive people or, or condemn them and tell them their sins are retained. But because Jesus Christ gave us the holy gift of the Spirit, we have that power within us, in our souls and our hearts, on behalf of God. Let's do so with discernment. Thank you. Amen. Thanks, Mike. How do you like our dress today? Isn't that nice? Anybody recognize this vest? I know the Peterson family does because this Vern probably wore this, and I mentioned the family. I I I, I like the presence of Vern because he was such a trusty trustee. When others, many would say. It, can't be done. Vern would say, it can be done. We'll do it. We'll do it. When we talked about sharing with another congregation and the tremendous opposition we had, Vern said, it, it can work. It can work. Thank God to J-Hop. Without J-Hop and, you know, the other means of sharing that we hope in the future will arrive, we would have not existed for these past few years. I was told 25 years ago, 25 years ago, by the district superintendent, if you can maintain this appointment for two or three years and possibly close it. But we've been hanging around for 25 years. You know, we were given a, a statement here by another district superintendent just a few years ago that either you go half time and we won't close the church or you maintain full time salary and benefits and we'll close it within a year or two. 
We're coming up on a situation currently, and I believe Gary will be sharing that later. You know, I want to mention, Paul, that here just, uh, just a few years ago, a number of the Hall of Famers at the university football team were called back in our anniversary during COVID. We, we couldn't meet. And we were honored, and I, I wore that shirt. I wanted to let my fellow football players know where I stood, that we do stand for the flag and we kneel for the cross. And all of us were, were called out on, during halftime, during the halftime game, and we were all introduced in our positions during the, the halftime on the field. I had three or so of my former football players that I didn't realize had become Christians and they were leaders of other churches. They came. I was called a Jesus person among the faculty at the university and in seminary because the Jesus movement was very, really strong in the 60s and early 70s. I was kind of an interesting sight. I, I had a, a 38 Chevy Coupe. Say it with me. 36, you know, or 38, 38 Chevy Coupe. And I'd drive around and I had this raccoon jacket that I'd wear. And I was reminded of this more recently when I talked one of my father-in-law's favorite friends and uh, the Chuck Scow, Chuck said, you know, that's, that's, that's an interesting guy that's dating your daughter, wearing that long raccoon jacket. And I still have that raccoon jacket. I sold the 38 coupe, but I still have a 36. And in the 36 coupe, I have my old raccoon jacket. Chuck told my father-in-law, I think that guy's a keeper. And I just found that, that out a few days ago. I was, I was talking with a gentleman, trying to learn more about my father-in-law who had passed away a, a number of years ago, Chris's father. The verses that we, we have now read contain things that's very hard to understand. And, and even in our day and time, and can you imagine what it was like during Jesus' time, understanding all these things that were going on. Like all the events which followed our Lord's resurrection, there is much, much in the facts before us which, which are mysterious and requires reverent handling. I remember it wasn't too many years ago that I sat next to... Um, that famed doctor, Dr. Elizabeth Cooper Ross at the Polar Hotel in Rochester, Minnesota, and we talked, and when she realized as a clergy, she, she said that she had witnessed, she had witnessed a number of appearances of resurrected bodies. And I thought, oh, you know, if I repeat that, they're gonna look at me as kind of like a kook. And certainly she's not gonna bring that out publicly. And they said, can you document that? Yes, she says, I went to the funerals of a number of my patients. I witnessed their death and their burial. And, I, and she said, you know, I, I'm, I'm struggling with kind of following you and believing you. And she said, some of those we have on tapes and they're going to be made available. And I thought to myself, won't that be 
something if that actually occurs? That individuals that, that walked the earth and had a disease and experienced death, that suddenly we can see them. Our Lord's actions here in suddenly, you know, say it with me, suddenly. Suddenly, you know, that's, that's suddenly, it's suddenly. Suddenly appearing among the disciples when the, the doors were what? Locked, closed. Talk about that peculiar body that Christ may have had. That transparent body that you can't really say it's fluid, you know, and that water is either, can be ice or just drinking water or gas state. The disciples, when the doors were closed and breathing upon them might soon draw us into some unprofitable speculation. It's easy in such cases to darken our counsel by words without knowledge. We just had in our Sunday school class the difference between wisdom and knowledge. We shall find it safer and, and wiser to confine our attention to points which are, are plain and instructed. We should observe, for one thing, the remarkable language, the language with which our Lord greeted, greeted the apostles. You know, we need that greeting, don't we, each and every morning as we see, you know, times, the uncertainties of our times and the chaos that we're living in. We need this greeting. As Jesus met them after his resurrection, twice he addressed them. Twice Jesus addressed them with these kindly words. Say it with me. Peace be unto you. Peace be unto you. There's something about that word peace. One of the, the, the last things I read, one of the first things I read in the mornings when I got a bit, I got this um, two-foot by my bed, it says peace. I want to go to bed, I want to go to sleep with peace. I want to rise up in the mornings with peace. Because it reminds me of Jesus' peace I give unto you. And we may dismiss as untenable in, in all probability this cold and cautious suggestion that this was nothing better than an unmeaning phrase of courtesy. But Jesus, who the scripture says, spoke as never a person spoke, said nothing without meaning. Jesus spoke, we may be sure, with special reference to the uh, state of mind of the, the 11 apostles, with special reference to the events of the last few days, and with a sense of special reference, special reference to their future ministry. And he said, peace. Peace and not blame. He said peace and not fault finding. Jesus said peace and not rebuke was the first word which this little company heard from their master's lips after he had left the tomb. It was very meek and it was very right and it was very fitting that it should be so and 
in full harmony with the things that had gone on before. Where had we heard that word peace before? Hadn't we heard it at his birth? Peace on earth was the song of the heavenly host when Christ was born. Peace and rest of the soul was the general subject that Christ continually preached for three years. Peace and not riches had been the great legacy which he had left with the eleven the night before his crucifixion. Surely it was in full keeping with all the tenor of our Lord's dealings that that when he revisited his little company of disciples after the resurrection, that his first word should be peace. It was a word that would soothe, and it's a word that calms their minds. Their minds. If you're following along, it's minds. How we need that peace of mind. Peace, we may safely conclude, was intended by our Lord to be the keynote, keynote to the Christian's ministry. That same peace which was so continually on the lips of the Master was to be the grand subject of the teaching of, of his disciples. Peace between God and humans through the precious blood the precious blood of the atonement. Peace between humans and humans through the infusion of grace, grace and and charity to spread such peace as this was to be the work, the work of the church. Any religion, any religion that like that of the Muhammads and, and others who encourage any form of violence who made converts with a sword is not from above, it's from beneath. Any form of Christianity which burns individuals at the stake in order to promote their own success carries about with it the stamp of a form of apostasy. That's the um, truest and best religion which does most to spread real, true peace. That's one of the commissions of a chaplain. He's a colonel, he's a chaplain in the military for nearly 30 years. We find the importance of seek first peace. We should observe for another thing in these verses the remarkable, the remarkable evidence which our Lord supplied of his own resurrection. He graciously appealed to the senses of his troubling disciples. He showed them his hands and and his side. He bade them see with his own eyes, or their own eyes, that, that he had a real material body and that he was not a ghost. He was not a ghost. He was not a spirit. Handle me, he says, handle me and 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 see were his words, according to St. Luke, a spirit hath not flesh and bone as you see me have. And great indeed was the condescension of our blessed master in, in thus coming down to the feeble of the faith of the eleven, 
apostles, but great also was a principle which he established for the use of his church in every age until he returns. That principle is that our master Jesus requires us to believe nothing Nothing is contrary to our senses. Things above our reason, above our reason, we must expect to find in a religion that comes from God, but not things that are contrary, contrary to reason. John Wesley, the father of Methodism, emphasized the four virtues of being able to authenticate the truth, and he says scripture first, tradition second, reason and experience. Let us lay hold, firm hold on this great principle and, and never ever forget to use it. Especially let us take care that we use it in estimating, in estimating the effect of the sacraments and the work of the Holy Ghost. To require people to believe that others have some form of quickening power of the Holy Spirit we talked about this in Sunday school class today too, that when our eyes tell us they are living in habitual carelessness and sin, leaders of our churches, or they veer from the truth, the word of God, or that the bread and the wine and Lord's Supper are somewhat Christ's real body and blood, we need to be careful of cannibalism, which the early Christians were crucified for. When our senses tell us they are still bread and wine, this is to require more belief than Christ ever required of his disciples. We do this in remembrance of Christ. It is to require that which is flatly contradictory to our reason and, and our common sense. Such religion Christ may never had part of. Let us not try to be wiser, wiser than our Lord. And we should observe lastly, lastly, in these verses, the remarkable commission. You and I are commissioned, which our Lord conferred upon his seven, his 11, 11 apostles. We are told that Jesus said, as my father has sent me, even so I send you, you, you and I am. And when he had said this, he breathed. He breathed on them. And, and, and whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. Now it's vain to deny that the true sense of these solemn words has been for centuries a subject of, of controversy and great dispute. It's useless perhaps to expect that the controversy will ever be closed, ever be ended, but the utmost is that we can hope to do with the passage is to supply a very probable expo explanation and exposure. It seems highly probable that our Lord in this place solemnly, solemnly commissioned you and I and his disciples to go into all the world and to preach the gospel as he had preached it, that his body is to be broken, his blood is to be shed, and because of that act, we have forgiveness of our sins. Grace is activated, God's riches at Christ's expense. And that this is precisely what the apostles did 
in a very simple matter of fact, which anyone may verify for himself or herself by reading the book of Acts, that when Peter proclaimed to the Jews, repent ye, repent ye and be baptized, and ye shall be, be converted. Repent ye and be converted. Proclaim to the Jews, repent ye and be converted. And when Paul declared at Antioch and Iconium, to you is the word, the word of the Salvation Senate. Through this man is preached the forgiveness of sins and by, by Jesus all that believe are justified. And they were doing what this passage commissioned to the Acts of the Apostles, the Apostles to do. They, they were opening with a sense of authority, authority, the door of salvation, and inviting with authority all the sinners to enter in and to be saved, according to Acts chapter 3, 19 and 13, chapter 13, 26 through 38. Now it seems, it seems on the other hand, most improbable that our Lord intended in this verse to sanction the practice of private, some private absolution. And I've been involved in many situations where, where certain clergy have felt they've been empowered not having any idea that I was a clergy, but they seem to maybe throw a little water or do some act of, on me or so of some private absolution after some private confession of sin. But whatever some may please to say, there is not a single instance, I believe, to be found in the acts of any apostle using such absolution from after confession. We do it when we partake of communion because we realize that once we ask for forgiveness of our sins, things we've committed in our lives, the things that we've omitted in our lives, sins of commission, sins of omission, that above all, there is not a trace in the two pastoral epistles to Timothy or Titus of such confession and absolution being recommended or thought desirable. In short, whatever a person may say about me or clergy in the pulpit, private ministerial absolution, there is not a single precedent for it in God's word. So let us leave the whole passage with this deep sense of the importance of the, the minister's office. The minister's office. When that office is daily exercised according to the mind of Christ, no higher honor can be imagined than that of being Christ ambassadors and proclaiming Christ's name to be the forgiveness of sins to a lost world. But let us ever be beware of investing in the minister, in the minister office with one jot or power or authority than Christ confirms upon it. To treat ministers as being in, in some sense a mediator or Mary as a form of mediator between God and humans is to rob Christ, to rob Christ of his prerogative. 
to hide this saving truth from sinners and to exalt ordained people to a position which they are totally unqualified to be and fill. Father, this morning we bring, this verse describes our Lord Jesus Christ's first appearance to the apostles in a body after he rose from the dead. It took place in the evening of the same Sunday when he had appeared to Mary Magdalene in the morning. And between that morning and evening, he had already appeared three times, once in the company of women returning from the, the tomb, as described by St. Matthew, once to Simon Peter, as we are told by St. Luke and St. Paul, and then once to two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. And this, therefore, was the, was the fifth appearance which our Lord graciously maintained. In each, each of these five appearances, we should observe, was almost peculiar in the circumstances, and unlike the others, we, we need not wonder that this Sunday, from the earliest ages, was always marked by the church as a day which ought to be had in remembrance and, and kept with peculiar honor. And we pray for those by way of television and, and by way of radio and other means of communication. They don't have to have a, a minister present or a Christian present. They can just cry out to God and they can say, I have sinned, I've fallen short of the glory of God, and just admit that they've sinned and they've fallen short of the glory of God. The ABCs that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then B, we need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then C, we need to confess him as our Lord and Savior. With every head bowed and every eye closed as we rededicate our hearts and our lives and our intentions and our actions to the revelation of Christ in our lives. Would you pray with me? Dear Jesus, I thank you for rising from the dead. Because in that act, you can forgive our sins. We repent from things we've done and left undone. We thank you for your forgiveness. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Empower us, O oh Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. And as the ushers come forward this morning with the offering plates, let us turn to our offertory prayer. If you'd be so kind to read the offertory prayer printed in your bulletins. O God of our salvation, we are witnesses to your amazing deeds. By the resurrection of your son Jesus, you have opened the gate to eternal life. We are grateful for your gifts of forgiveness and a new start. Let the obedience of Christ, the righteous one, become the chief cornerstone of our lives. Help us to use our spiritual gifts and monetary blessings be a testimony to your glory. We dedicate ourselves and our offerings to Christ, our risen Lord. Amen. As the ushers come, let us turn to our offertory hymn, Breathe, Breathe on Me, Breath of God, Purple, number four.
Would you stand with me, please, for the doxology? Mighty God of resurrection power, you are the Almighty One, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You offer us life that, that overcomes death, light that overcomes darkness, hope that overcomes our deepest despair. What response could we offer? Our ties and our gifts, yes, but our minds, our hearts, our bodies, and our witness as well. And may our minds be about understanding who you are and who you long for us to be in this world. May our hearts overflow with your love and compassion for the poor, the oppressed, and the for forgotten. May our bodies carry us out of these tombs of isolation to engage our neighbors and sisters and brothers in Christ. And may our witness be the hallelujahs we take with us to bring hope to everyone we meet. In the risen Christ we pray. Amen. <laughs> 